winter. Hello and welcome to What We Do in the Winter. This is the 54th episode in this series of podcasts from the Isles of Mull, Iona, Ulva, Gometra and Eirid. I'm Alistair Satchel. I live outside of Dervig in the north of Mull and I'll be your host today. In this episode, I talk with Hannah Fisher of Kintra in the Ross of Mull. I hope this finds you safe and well. Originally from Dunkeld, Hannah is a musician who has toured the world with bands including Idlewild and King Creosote, whilst also having a fantastic solo career as one of the most interesting fiddle players and composers around at this moment in time. I'm delighted to say that Hannah has let us have two pieces of music to play in this episode. The first piece you'll hear halfway through our chat, and the second will play us out at the end of the episode. Our conversation takes us back through her childhood, the roots of her musical adventures, her career to date, and how Mull and Contra in particular has become home. Hannah and I spoke online during the first COVID-19 lockdown. Hannah used a fantastic microphone of which I'm deeply jealous. At certain points though, you can hear her phone buzz and fall off of things as we were talking over video messaging, which adds a small amount of drama to the whole thing. It's been so long since last I had an episode out, so let's get straight into it. I'll be back at the end with a wodge of havers and some exciting news about what we do in the winter merchandise, your actual merchandise. Anyway, without further ado, I'm delighted to hand you over to Hannah Fisher. Who are you? I am Hannah Fisher. I'm a musician and I live on the Ross of Mull. Whereabouts in the Ross of Mull are you? We are in Contra, uh, just about a mile before you get to Finnerfort uh, or the Iona Ferry. Could you describe Contra for the listener, please? Because it's, it's one of the most magical places on the island, to my, to my taste anyway. Yeah, so it's um, it's quite an unusual um line of well it's a kind of hamlet the the main village um on the it's right on the water and it's a line of nine or ten houses quite close together um all facing north um and it's right on the water as well so when the tide's in it's only it's sort of dangerously close to the houses <laughs> as we've been finding out with these high tides oh gosh i know there was one there in uh was it march that was insanely high it was really mad. Yeah, there was the um, which one? That's Brendan, Storm Brendan in January. I think that was the highest one. We had seaweed right outside the front door then. The situation I can try is absolutely stunning. It's a, uh, it's really one of the most beautiful parts of the island. Especially, I love um, climbing up in that hummock off to the the right over there. What is that? Does that have a name? That wee hill. Which one? The one on the shore itself that you, that looks down over Contrage, the wee hummock there. Uh, Monkey Hill could Monkey. be Monkey Hill um, story with that is that um, in fact a lady that came up to stay in a house for ho- for a holiday um, asked if she could come in and have a little look around the house because her grandfather built P- Primrose Cottage which is the, c- the cottage that we're in so she came in and had a sort of we look around and showed us how the cow was kind of set up and she was telling us a story of her grandfather having a monkey that then <laughs> that lived in the house but then ended up um biting him I think. <laughs> and he got septicemia and died, I think. Right. 
Yeah. That's so rather I brutal and sad. That's Monkey Hill. I think that's the one you're meaning. Wow. <laughs> that, that's a, a good way to remember the name, certainly. Yeah. I know. It's a bit wild. Wow. Yeah, and um, so Primrose Cottage, um, how did you come to end up being in Primrose Cottage? Because previously, um, previously you'd been elsewhere on the island. What, what was it made you choose Primrose Cottage? Well, it kind of chose us. Um, we moved from Glasgow um, in, I think it was 2013, to um, Carsig, a little kind of um, chalet in Carsig in front of Anymore House. And um, Yeah, we get, I was kind of ready to... I hadn't been in Glasgow for that long, but I was ready to kind of get out of the city. I wasn't quite ready to go back to Dunkeld, where I'm from, so I... Well, I guess we just started looking at other places and Mull was one of those things that, that came up and we just found a little chalet that was quite cheap to rent and we, we kept our flat in Glasgow. Um, Brilliant. So that we could have a kind of backup plan in case we didn't like living there or if it was too difficult with work and stuff like that. And once we'd been there for about eight months, um, Roddy actually phoned us when we were on the ferry to say that this cottage was coming up, that his friends were moving out. And would we like to go and see it? And as you know, houses are really, really hard to come by on Mull. So we, I think we didn't even have to go and see it, but we did. And we, we just totally loved it. So that's how we ended up in Contra. Fantastic. Yeah, it's the, the pattern of house ownership is so interesting and how it all weaves in amongst all different people. And it's really, it's amazing. It's really fascinating. Yeah. Are there normally uh, other people in in Contra throughout the course of the year, or is it mostly a, a sort of village that's dominated by the, the the passing summer trade? I have to say, it is mainly mainly um, second homes. Actually, even not even rented out holiday houses. The main kind of um, the main village here is I think there's nine or ten houses, and uh, we were the only people that lived here for six years and then um, a family have just moved up well not have just they've been here for a year now so it's, it's lovely having them and they've got five kids as well so there's wow. yeah seven of them and three dogs and then us and the cat but that's only two out of the ten houses that are occupied at the moment but the Contra is kind of a a greater area there's Rosie and Nigel up the back and Terry and um, yeah. John and quite a lot of People around and about, but in the kind of main village in the front, it's just us. Yeah. So you said that you're um, you're from not from Mull originally. You're from Dunkeld. Can you tell us about Dunkeld? How come your family are in Dunkeld? Well, I'm from yeah near near Dunkeld, and um, my mum is from Perth. Her family are from Perth, and my dad is from Butte. So we ended up, I went to school in a little place called Bankfoot and that's where we kind of spent our younger years around there. And then my dad got a job as an estate manager on an estate just outside Dunkeld. So that's how we ended up there. Butte's a lovely place. It's somewhere I don't get to very often. And as a child, um, being from Dunoon, it was kind of <laughs> not the enemy, but it was kind of like, oh no, Rothsay man, oh no, I don't want to go down there. But actually, when you go down, I've got a good friend, Sam, that still lives there. Um, and when you go down and you explore around Butte, my God, it's stunning. Over on the other side, looking onto Arran and all that, it's just, 
it's a magical island and I don't think it's actually celebrated enough and it's kind of it's such a it's a really special place whereabouts on the island was your, your is your dad from on Butte he is from Kilcatton Bay lovely yeah so it's a really a really nice part of Butte and it, you're right it's lovely it's definitely um overlooked I think oh totally in in terms of being an island there are some really be- beautiful parts of it and uh, Butte Festival I don't know if you've been there that's a great one to go to too on Ettrick Bay. Ah, no, I've not done Last that. time I was there, the whole uh, the whole marquee and stage basically blew away. But uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's a great great little festival to go <laughs> to go to. I don't get don't get to Butte very often, but I've still got family there. Yeah, and <laughs> sorry that <laughs> just vibrated in my ear. It's like sorry, I do apologise wholeheartedly. <laughs> mm. uh, and uh, so your mum from Perth, whereabouts in Perth? Is she, is she from the town itself? Or is she from Murthley or Stanley? Or... Oh, mum, that's my mum. <laughs> Still done. She knows what we're talking uh, about. Oh, I can't, I can't on... Uh, I'm a Velcroed I... onto the screen. How do I stop her? How do I... St- oh, for goodness sake. How do I... Um, airplane, airplane mode, but then you'd yeah, lose me. But then uh, I'd lose you. Sorry. <laughs> so yes, I so your mum um <laughs> your mum who's just been phoning us there. <laughs> um who um, where, whereabouts in Perth is she from? She's from sort of Perth town. I think she spent most of her life there. And then I guess when when she had well when my mum and dad had kids, they ended up going a bit more rural, various different houses when we were little. So you always grew up in a rural environment then? Yeah, I guess actually the village Bankfoot was kind of the most sort of built up area that we were in. That was when we were quite quite young, kind of primary school age. But before and after that, it's been more kind of rural and we've always had lots of animals and um, interests and horses and <laughs> pet lambs and all, all sorts of things like that. Yeah. yeah. What is it about horses and horse culture that spoke to you from uh, in, as a child and then has carried on? Or has it carried on? It has carried on, yeah. Um, I was born into a horsey family. So my mum and my granny already had horses. So I think when you're in a horsey family, it's definitely impossible to not be interested in it or... It's just such a part of big part of your lifestyle, you know. It's like having any sort of animal, but um horses they're they're kinda different to a dog and a cat, I think. They're obviously they're bigger and they're you've got that outdoors thing and you have to go and visit them or go out to the field and to see them and um they they have a really special kind of loyalty, I think, to humans and there's a there's a definite special bond and connection between humans and horses, I think. And there's, you can see that in therapy, um, you know, therapy animals, but therapy ponies and horses, which is what my mum uh, works in now. She Really? She works for um, Camp Hill and in an amazing place called uh, Kerbenic, just outside Dunkeld. And she um, uses the horses as both for riding, um, but also just for therapy, brushing and, you know, tacking up and mucking out the stables and just spending ah, time with them. I'd never um, thought of that, right. That's cool. Yeah, it's just amazing. 
um, the connection that that a lot of these people have with the ponies is, yeah. And in terms of yourself as a young person, obviously horses and ponies you don't just keep them in a field and pat them you go out and you explore the space with them what is that relationship like um as a young person having your own your own pony i presume and how did you how were you able to explore what was your relationship to space and your the land around you like with you and your pony if that's not too abstract a question no well it's every little girl's dream to have a pony isn't it really and i guess um i think i was the only person in my class that had that luxury. I don't know. It's it's almost like going out for a cycle on your own or something like that. It's you know it's it's one thing going out with someone else for a a bike ride or something like that on a nice evening, but going out with another animal, it's, there's something really special about it because you don't feel like you're on your own. And yeah, there's parts of um, there's parts of the kind of hills around. Um, Rumbling Bridge and stuff where we have the horses that you probably wouldn't have explored otherwise it's a ni- it's a really nice way to just kind of go out and have no plans and see where you end up safely obviously <laughs> that's fantastic is that not the career of all artists <laughs> well <laughs> and you don't have to use your own legs <laughs> yeah as a bonus <laughs> well, that's a good thing yeah, yeah. best known as a musician um, and I was wondering could you tell us where did your musical journey start were you always um, a fiddle player or did you start off on the piano was it the harp where, where, where did your musical journey start so my musical journey started in school I think I was in primary two back then I don't I think it is kind of similar now but um there was a huge waiting list to start playing an instrument. I remember that, even though I was really young. And I actually started, I didn't really have, I don't remember the desire myself to start playing, but uh, some of my friends started playing in in the class. And yeah, I guess I just wanted to kind of join in and, and yeah, be part of that. So the violin was, we had a violin teacher. Yeah. That was available. So when when a space came up, that's the instrument that I chose. And myself and one of my best pals in primary school, Victoria, um, we did it together. So we had lessons together all the way until we left secondary school, from primary to to right up through till we were, um, I don't know, seventeen, eighteen. Wow, which was lovely. Um, so yeah, that's where it started, and I had a really amazing teacher in primary school. After a few kind of um, not so good ones, <laughs> yeah, yeah, we ended up having a just the the kind of teacher that that should you know every everyone should have the opportunity to have this kind of teacher. Mrs. Nairn, her name was, um, and she was just amazing and so you know she wouldn't she wouldn't. Um, like force you you know you just felt like it was all very natural and she and she made it really fun and um uh, yeah I don't I don't remember anyone giving up the instruments when she was teaching us 
And it's definitely down to her that I was still playing in secondary school. And what was um, what style were you playing? You say violin. So was it violin and classical music that you were learning when you were first off? Yeah, so I learned classical music from the very start until the end of my kind of school teaching um, thing. And then when I was about 11, I think, Mrs Nairn actually <laughs> introduced us to this a book that had a tune in it called The Irish Washerwoman. And I was that was the very first um, fiddle tune that I learned. And it probably still is one of the first tunes that people learned. But it's quite hard, actually. Yeah. Um, yeah, so that was the first tune that I heard and, and learned to play, and I loved it. Yeah. And I think that's just what made me kind of get into the kind of fiddly thing because I, I still I still think that a lot of the classical teaching is too formal and it yeah. it's not that fun. Yeah. Um or it can it can be a little bit too formal. Yeah. Um I think that's why a lot of people like playing the tunes because it's sort of instantly fun. They're yeah. kind of shorter tunes and you can perfect them quicker and and stuff like that but yeah what was it that made you stick with the fiddle then was it the introduction of folk music into your life or was it uh your friendship or was it what what was what was the bite for you to keep playing the fiddle i don't really know actually i i was very natural i think Mm. um is music in your family well my mum played fiddle or the violin when she was in school um, and she, but she didn't keep it up, but she can still, you know, she still read music and play, play a bit. She's still got a fiddle. And my dad, did he, I think he played the tuba. Ah, I used to play the tuba the at school drums. as well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So he was really into drums as well. So, um, they were both sort of, they had done a bit of music, but they weren't particularly sort of musical in terms of like playing in the house or anything like that. I don't know what it was that kept me playing, but I think it was just definitely something to do with finding it. I didn't find it easy, but I definitely found that I was a natural at it. And my mum never had to tell me to practice. Oh, that's wonderful. Wow. Never. I would just come home and it's kind of all I wanted to do from what I can remember. That's so cool. Um, Yeah. So I just came home and played the fiddle and... I don't really remember much of the early years, but because that's awful, as you all know, it's just terrible at the start of learning the fiddle because it's really difficult. Yeah. <laughs> but um, I don't remember there being too that be, that stage being too long. You know, I felt like I could play something quite reasonably well, quite quickly. At what point did uh, the world of folk culture open up to you, where you're going to sessions or meeting people and exchanging tunes with them? When did that happen for you? Well, <laughs> quite young, actually. From maybe about the age of 10, I was going to the pub, to um, the Tay Bank in Dunkeld, which is kind of famous for Dewey McLean owning it. Oh, of course. Um, Scotland's musical meeting place. And there used to be um, like amazing tunes happening there all the time. And... Um, Ross Ainsley used to work in the kitchen. Ali Hutton, wow. I think, used to work in the kitchen as well. And I remember them just sort of bunking off the the kitchen work and just starting playing the pipes and stuff like that. So then there'd be like no food happening because 
all the staff are in the bar playing tunes. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it was my dad. My dad took us there. Um, yeah, I just remember playing the fiddle kind of in the pub with a few friends and Doogie would be there and stuff like that. And it was just that kind of really, that kind of thing that doesn't happen anymore, really. Um, just because it's a, you know, a different time now, but... yeah. Um, then I started going to Pete Clark's sessions. Who he would run a a kind of group class upstairs, um, and then we'd all go downstairs to the bar to play tunes on a Thursday night. It's still still um, fiddle night happens now, but um, yeah. So it was basically the pub, going to the pub as a kid. <laughs> They started that kind of fiddle and testing. And then I started going to the Dunkeldon District's Draspian Real Society, yes. which I was the youngest member. I started there when I was 11, and I think I was the youngest member by about 70 years. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but all those people were just amazing. They, they were so supportive and... You know, like it was like having your grandparents there. They'd be t- so chuffed that you were coming to play tunes with yeah. them and, and stuff like that. And I couldn't, I couldn't keep up with them then. Yeah. You know, I couldn't. I felt really nervous. I, I couldn't keep up with the music, but I would just sit there and kind of mime yeah. along with the old classics. But that was definitely what brought me on because I had to up my game because I, I had to. Um, yeah, stop miming. <laughs> well, indeed, yes. Uh, yeah, we've all been there. Yeah, yep. I, I, although I said I was probably more of a honk toot parper than a mimer. I must admit. <laughs> but uh, that's fab. And um, for, for the listener that might not know what a Strathspeyan Real Society is, Strathspeyan Real Society is. Could you describe what that is and what, particularly coming from where you do, what is Strathspey culture? What is a Strathspey as well? Okay, so um, the Strathspey is a dance, um, but uh, the Strathspey Real Society started, oh, I don't even know, I should really probably know this, um, a million years ago. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I think the Dunkeld Strathspey Real Society started in the at late 1800s, actually. It been, it's been going for a really, 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 really long time. And um, for us, actually, I think it was just, sort of a kind of social thing where people you there's no there's no rules on who can join and who can't you know it's predominantly fiddles yeah. that play um fiddle players and you'd maybe have a piano player and um i think i mean double bass maybe as well yeah, yeah, yeah. that sort of thing but it was kind of mainly those kind of instruments but um now it's certainly the dunkeld one has has um welcomed a lot of younger people it's it's always been predominantly older people like the scottish fiddle orchestra that sort of thing i think in a way it has kind of put off a lot of younger people joining because it's quite um yeah it's maybe a little bit more formal than yes than the other kind of folk it's more kind of traditional tunes or um kind of dance bandy sort of tunes yeah Pipe marches, yeah, a so lot that, of pipe marches and things like oh, that as well. Good, lots of See, lots I, of pipe marches. I love a pipe march and I, I I really do enjoy them, but not I don't when I play in kind of sessiony things with friends around here. We don't tend to play that many pipe marches, and I need to get back into it because <gasps> they're such a 
there's although the the chord structure of them tends to be you know quite simple, but the melodic and kind of playing structure of them is a lot of fun. There's a lot of really interesting stuff to find in it and make it interesting to hear as well. I love a pipe march. Yeah. I think it's probably my favourite kind of tune actually, a pipe march, definitely. Yeah. Lots yeah. of um lots of different ways you can play it and things you can do with them with grace notes and stuff like that. They're just great to you know, you probably not won't play them the same the same twice. Yeah. Yeah, I love a pet march. I forgot to mention accordions. Of course, accordions are in the Strasbian Real Society too. We don't talk about accordions in this podcast. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, I, 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 yeah, I love the accordion as well. I've, uh, I've got one, and uh, actually, Ian Morrison's borrowed mine for the time being. I borrowed a lens for him from my camera, and he's borrowed my accordion. And uh, it's just such a lovely thing to to work with. And like the left hand is just like, what is this devilry? I love it. It's great. It doesn't make any sense. Oh, it's so makes good. no sense. I love it. It's a no. puzzle. <laughs> yeah, I've grown to love the accordion. Actually. Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah, 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 it's taken me a long time. But <laughs> no, <laughs> I know what you mean. <laughs> I suppose it depends on who's playing it, much like the fiddle well, or indeed. any instrument. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> except for the accordions, more no more so than that. Uh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> so you go from um, you go from uh, playing fiddle at uh, in Dunkeld and around. You've you've gone done your um, school career. What what did you do after school? Where did you go after school? Well, in during school, mid mid secondary school, um, we had a little band. My sister Kirsty, myself, and Mary McKinnon, who's an amazing fiddle player. Um, sh- we had a little band <laughs> together, so we would play. Well, thanks to our parents, we would play lots of festivals, folk festivals, and all that kind of thing, like. Um, Gia Music Festival, oh, and Tire Festival, and lo- all these kind of little islandy West Coast folk festivals. Um, we would just all jump in the car and go camping with the instruments. And a lot of the time we didn't have an official kind of slot or anything like that. We weren't on the bill, but for some reason we always ended up on the stage. <laughs> um, Cool. And Ross Kennedy from the Tannehill Weavers, he's definitely one to thank for that because he really, really believed in us. I think we were quite good for our age, but we ended up on on a lot of stages because of him. And and then towards the end of school, I um, got a scholarship to the RSAMD, as it was then. Ah, brilliant. To the junior junior course. So that was... A full week at school, and then I would get on the 7 a.m. train to Glasgow on a Saturday morning and head to, yeah, RSMD there. And I did a combined classical and trad course. The trad course, I don't think, had been going that long for the juniors then. That was great because I got to meet loads of other people that were kind of out with that kind of Dunkeld place because although there's hundreds of people there, and loads and loads of musicians passing through the Tay Bank and stuff. It was just kind of nicer to, or nice to to meet young folk that were into playing folk music and music in general. And it was really good for me in terms of practice and just technique things and all that mm. from the from playing in the orchestra. I felt so out of my depth in that orchestra. I mean, that was probably the best players 
in you know of of that secondary school age in the country and Amazing. i felt very very out of my depth there was a lot of miming went on there too in <laughs> the start but towards the end i felt like i had learned a lot actually more so i think i learned a, more from the classical side of things even though i went to do the trad course so what do you think it is about classical music that, that taught you uh, the lessons you've learned is it the narrative structure of melody what what is it it's yeah, I think there's definitely there's definitely a bit of that. Also, just basic technique and um, posture and all that kind of stuff. I think is is really really important to prevent injury and just longevity of your career in general. And that's really good um, to hear. Yeah. I, oh no, I would definitely, f- you know, absolutely definitely say, a, like classical training is amazing at the start. And I did not appreciate it at the time. My great granny, Granny B, would always want to hear all the um, all the classical things that we've been learning. And I was like, "Oh, Granny, no! I want to play these tunes." But um, I really kind of wish that I had been more into it then. I think mm. I could have gotten more out of it. There's still time for you to kind of pursue your own interest within it as well and make it your own in a different way as well, which is, you know, that's the thing about music. It's, you can, you know, I'm still some 20 years into it. I'm still trying to learn gypsy jazz style guitar and veiling badly, but I still, (laughs) there's so much for me to learn in that little corner over there. And uh, one of the things I really want to have a shot at one day is um, the klezmer style fiddle because i just love klezmer music when i hear it so the because it's just a different approach to the to these you know this this the, these three ranges on the fiddle and it's like oh man that's so good yeah yeah there's loads of i mean there's loads of interesting things to discover even with your own instrument isn't there it's yeah. just yeah and i actually find that if i go back to the more kind, kind of classical stuff it's i find it easier to practice in a way because you often have music I read music which I'm thankful for as well now yeah. um, although I don't use it that often um, but yeah it's it's kind of an easier way to practice technique and stuff like that because you're using a, a, a piece of music so yeah. there's a start and an end yeah. Um, Definitely. yeah so who was there at the, the RSMD in that group that you still know to this day David Foley from Rura. He was there. Um, Sally Simpson, she plays in a band called Heisk. Mm-hmm. Um, she's a great fiddle player too. Actually, I don't think that many people have pursued it as careers. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, there, there are a few, a few other people, but I don't think anyone else is actually has it as their as their first sort of job their first career and so has music always been your career did you study something else at university did you study biophysics or what did you what did you do or did we straight into the world of music and art well uh i applied for scottish ethnology oh nice lovely yes i still sort of think i might do that yeah it's worth it I, I think I sort of do that in my own job as well, though, a lot of the time. Yes. A part of me wonders, is that the sort of thing that I should be doing or not? I don't know, but it definitely still interests me. But that's yeah. what I applied for, uh, Scottish ethnology and also geology. 
Oh. Like Edinburgh. Those Rock, two things. Rocks and people. Glasgow, sorry. Fantastic. Rocks and people, yeah. Um, and I remember having that guidance meeting. And I remember saying, um, I don't know whether I should keep my music as my hobby. And I feel like you're pressured to do that. Mm-hmm. I was def- I definitely didn't feel under pressure from my parents or anything like that. But there was definitely that thing, isn't it, when you get to the end of school, like yep. you're going to university. Yeah. Because there is no other plan. <laughs> no, not at all. You can't do anything else. You go to university. Yeah. So I think maybe, <laughs> I'm guessing, with a, along with a lot of other people, people just think that they should do something that's a, that is going to end up with a, a real job, I suppose. Um, but I didn't, and I had a wee, a wee while of watching daytime television mm-hmm. <laughs> in between the music thing and the end of school, but um, I didn't study... I kind of made a, dis- a conscious decision not to study, actually. I didn't really, and still don't, really, um, for the th- kind of music that I want- wanted to play, I didn't think that that was going to be of benefit to me. And I felt like it would hold me back. I felt like in those three or four years that I would be studying there, I could do a lot. And yeah. I have absolutely no regrets of doing that because... It was the right, it was the right route for me. So where did your music career then first take you? Were you part of a group? Were you? Um, I did the kind of Kaylee function band thing for a while, mm-hmm. um, just to make some pennies, really, to yeah. run the car and pay the rent and stuff. And then um, I met Soren, and that's really where my real kind of proper career started because I met Roddy through Soren. Can you say who who is uh, who are Roddy and Soren just for the listener who might not know them? So, uh Soren McLean, he is a Mull a Mull native. 
of 500 years or whatever. Um, <laughs> he's, he's looking good for it, though. It must be said. <laughs> yep. And, Still got his um, own hair. Yeah. <laughs> he's a guitarist as well. So he had co-written the second of Roddy Wimble's uh, solo albums, Impossible Song and other songs. And the fiddle player, Shona Aitken, who is unbelievable... If you haven't heard her gypsy jazz playing, you need to get on that. Um, oh, she's also do. the presenter of Jazz Nights at the Key. Ah, A little plug for Shona. Nice. Um, and she has an amazing band called Rose Room as well. Oh, um, yeah. So, um, yeah, Shona played with Roddy then. And she's just super busy with lots and lots of different stuff and writing and arranging and whatnot, orchestration. Um, I hope I didn't steal her job. I don't think I did. <laughs> but somehow there was some sort of crossover and I ended up playing with Roddy. Or we kind of both ended up playing with Roddy for a while. Yeah. And then, yeah. Yeah, so I guess, yeah. Roddy was Roddy um, Wimble's solo band was kind of the first big thing that I had done with an, you know, a really established artist. Um, he... he the band Idlewild were taking a break and he's the lead singer of that. Um, and he decided that he was going to kind of pursue a solo career, which was very successful. Mm. Um, so yeah, where, did, and yeah. where did you work with Roddy take you? All over. Was there a moment where you thought, yes, I've chosen the right thing? Oh, so many. So many. I think just when you become friends with people through your work it's just a really special thing I think and yeah. obviously you've got uh, it's like you've got something in common when we were on tour and stuff like that it just felt like we were all well we were we were just sort of hanging out as friends so all all those moments I mean there's it's tiring and stuff like that obviously oh, but yeah. and you're you're all together for a couple of weeks and at that point it wasn't a tour bus or anything like that. it was a I don't know, Citroen Picasso or something like that. <laughs> so, yeah, there's five of you and, and your gear in that. I don't remember any falling out or anything like that. So every, every, every day. Yeah. I, I say it out loud a lot. Um, I am just feel so lucky yeah. to, to be playing and to be going to see all, all these amazing places. We've been to all over Europe and... America, Canada, Japan. Yeah. I mean, yeah. you don't get to do that with many jobs unless you're yeah. flying to a conference or something like that, and that's not the same really as playing a gig. So what's the connection with an audience in Japan like compared to a connection with an audience in, say, Arbroath? What's, what's it like? Do you notice a cultural difference in the way that people engage with and listen to music? Japanese people are amazing, and they're just so... Friendly and mm. polite, and yeah, the gigs that we did there were um, quite different to gigs here. It felt like um, I was. It was gigs. The gigs in Japan were with Idlewild. Yeah. Um, and they had. Um, it was the. It was a kind of really busy year for me in two thousand fifteen with various different bands that I play with. Everyone seemed to release an album on the same year in 2015, so it was pretty much not at home that year. And that's the year we went to Japan. And um, Idlewild had already 
they've already got quite a good fan base there. Yeah. Um, of loyal fans as well. There's quite a lot yeah. of people fly over from Japan for gigs here in the yeah. UK. And that, you know, that was nothing to do with me. <laughs> they were, you know, I just play with them. A lot of people knew that I was going to be there, which was also really nice. And um, yeah, very polite audience, but a really appreciative audience as well. And then at the end, there was a kind of strange, you know, like a meet and greet. You might you might have mm-hmm. a meet and greet here. I think that's what you call it, um, where you yeah. get to meet the band or you yeah. go to the sound check or something like that. I don't know why anyone would want to go to the sound check, but there you go. We sort of did that after the gig and... We all had a sort of table, a, like a sort of judging panel, huh? um, where the band sat, and there was a big, long, very orderly queue um, of people that wanted to kind of meet everybody in the band. Wow. Um, and they'd come up one by one and say, you know, thank you so much, and we loved your gig or something like that, um, and give you gifts. So I still have some amazing gifts, some beautiful, like, um, fans and soap, fish soaps and just lovely, just so kind and lovely. And, um, yeah, I'd love to go back because we didn't really have enough time there, but, um, to kind of explore a lot. But yeah, that was definitely one of our favorite places that we've been so far. I love Japan. I would. Lo- I'm desperate to go back one day. There's so much more to see and learn. It's just, it's awesome. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And so your own um, prominence rose as well as a solo artist. How did you start to magnify your kind of your your name and your brand? Uh, were there any kind of specific awards or anything that you went for and got? Or in 2013. 2012, um, 2012, I went uh, for the, well, I entered the Young Traditional Musician of the Year competition, BBC mm-hmm. Radio Scotland. Yeah, a lot of the people that I met on that, I was already kind of friends with, but it just kind of really made me appreciate how amazing the kind of young folk scene is in Scotland. Because yeah. I'm friends with everybody, you just... Everyone that was on that, um, in that group in particular, um, were just amazing uh, musicians and people. And the amount of people that have come through that competition is quite incredible. I, mean, I think every every winner certainly has a very successful career, but um, yeah. winning is not the the important bit. Yeah. Um, but. Yeah, I got into the finals, final six, and Paddy Callahan, box mm-hmm. player, amazing mm-hmm. box player, won it that year. Nice. And then we we did a tour um, with that group, which was amazing, of the kind of Highlands and Islands and Jura Music Festival and mm. all that kind of stuff, which they're still the best gigs, I think. It doesn't matter how, how big the gig is. I love little folk festivals in Scotland. Yeah, totally. Especially in the islands. I think it was a good thing that I didn't win it because... I have always been really interested in other kinds of music. Yes. I think the folk scene's definitely guilty of listening to folk music and and then mainstream pop. Yeah. I've always been very interested in lots of other kinds of music 
and ended up obviously with work with Roddy in the kind of more indie scene. So through that competition, I think maybe if I'd won it, I might have felt a bit more pressure to kind of be the trad music thing. Um, But I mean, maybe not. I don't know. But it was good, I think, for me because I didn't, since then, I haven't actually really done that much stuff in that kind of genre i've worked more in the kind of indie hmm. indie folk scene th- through my work with roddy um idlewild and mainly king Creso. Hmm. so um yeah it, that's i've kind of it's been through them it's been through working with um my pals and different bands like that that my own kind of solo career has um, had a little bit of a boost as it always does if you're working with someone that already has an established um, fan base. <laughs> so, in terms of your own compositions, then, do, um, am I right in remembering you got a commission at uh, from Celtic Com- uh, Connections? Is that right? Did... Yeah, yeah, I did one of the um, uh, New Voices commissions from was... Donald Shaw. What was that like, and what what was the what was your aim with the piece that you created? Uh, so the commission itself, I was so you know I was so happy to be to be asked by Donald to write. I think it's fifty minutes worth of music for the commission. Fantastic. Um, and but the the gig itself was the most nerve wracking gig I have ever done in my life. Yeah. It felt. It didn't feel like a normal gig to me and um, I think I'd never been under that much pressure or felt like I was under that much pressure because I had a seven or eight piece band. Oh, wow. Um, which, you know, you have to write a lot of the music yeah. for yourself and stuff. I, um, my band contributed hugely um, to to that. I had And the people that I, I had with me in the band had played with me for years and years so I didn't have that kind of new thing that we were already we already had that kind of musical connection and any musicians will tell you that that people that play together just there's something about that when you when you've played with someone for a while um you can always kind of preempt what someone's going to do or you don't have to kind of watch them all the time yeah yeah so it was a really um really really good experience and it was definitely something that I, you know, some of the songs in that I have, you know, I still sing and, and yeah. love as well. And my piece was um, written through, your, the idea is that you have a, some sort of theme. Um, you don't really have to, but I think it's helpful to, um, in order to create your piece, whether it's a one piece or has movements or or different tunes or whatever, but mine um, was based around the paintings of my great-grandfather, who um, I didn't meet. Um, but he he died in the early 60s, and I've inherited a lot of his paintings, but I used the, the paintings as a kind of base for my ideas. Wow. Um, and the commission was called around this view so the paintings which are actually behind me just now are um of various views in scotland between the kind of 1940 and 60s 1961 
two Brilliant. sort of things. So a yeah, deeply personal um, connection. So how did that yeah. then go down with the audience? And then also how did that go down with your family as such a personal connection to to both the place and them? What was that like? I think it went down really well with the with the audience. I had um my friend Ruth, who is an amazing jeweler, um an artist. I had her as a part of the team to um create a kind of backdrop along with one of my best pals Gary who is a lighting engineer for loads of big bands Um, and it's amazing that people take for granted the show when you go to see a gig but imagine going to see Biffy Clyro or something like that or whoever it is without lights it would just be you know it would be half as good so I had Gary who had organised all these amazing fancy lights Ruth, um, I took along the paintings that I had and made a kind of backdrop with the lights and the the paintings and Ruth um, was in charge of that. So I think we kind of set, we wanted to set a scene that was kind of more um, informal. We had kind of lamps on the stage, that sort of thing, um, to make it a little bit more kind of personal. Lovely. Um, but I felt that I didn't have, because I was in... It's just that thing of working to a deadline. I'm definitely not the kind of person that's super organised and has finished, you know, three months before. I was working right up to a couple of days before that thing. So I think I just wanted it to be over. (laughs) Didn't have time to appreciate it for what it was. But actually, I've been recording some of the songs again. Oh, lovely. Um, Cool. And I'm really... They really mean something to me. Yeah. Uh, And I think... Because my parents and and my family have only really heard them that once at the yeah. at the gig, so it's probably not enough time to take that sort of thing in. But once they're kind of recorded, I think maybe I'll probably appreciate it more. mentioned there that you play with King Creosote as well could you explain for the listener I'm sure most listeners will know who that is but what what is what is King Creosote is it in a tin is it a man what is it <laughs> so um King Creosote is the kind of um alter ego of Kenny Anderson who is a prolific writer and singer, songwriter, guitar player, very good accordionist. Mm-hmm. Um, if one has to be. <laughs> if, <laughs> from Fife. King Creso kind of becomes whatever is out that day, I guess. Yeah. Um, but when, it's, um, when I'm involved, it's usually either Kenny and I and Soren and Gordon McLean or a few of us um, or the whole band, which is the main project that I am involved with and that's a nine eight or nine piece band yeah I've been playing with Kenny since about 2013 I think and it's just one of the best gigs the best fun we're all best pals and yeah 
That's brilliant. Love it. What about the so for me, um the the thing that really sticks out that obviously Kenny's done so, so much work, but the thing that sticks out for me is the From Scotland with Love project. Could you describe that for the listener a little bit? What is From Scotland with Love? Yeah, so um From Scotland with Love is uh archive film uh footage uh of Scotland and the scenes are set to a soundtrack written by Kenny, um especially for so it is a commission. Um I think there's only one song in the whole film that they used from Kenny's back catalogue and that was Favourite Girl. Um which Kenny all Kenny fans will will know. I think it's a favourite hmm. favourite for a lot of people. But um yeah so the the film was kind of toured with big with a kind of big screen round concert halls and stuff like that with live band huge production string section and i think it was originally in two, can't remember i think it was 2014 um and Pete Pete Harvey who's just amazing um he is a cello player but he kind of wrote all the string parts for that mm. as well which are a huge part of that that whole kind the of, feel of that album thing, yeah. yeah 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 he's got brilliant just there's no one like him there's i can't think of anyone that writes strings like him they've got so much character and energy and they just totally transform a lot of those songs that were already brilliant so um yeah so we're just just before lockdown happened we were on tour with with from Scotland with Love but a slightly stripped back version that was a UK tour and we actually had the last the last gig of all time I think it was at the moment mm. um in Manchester that was the last gig that we did and it the capacity is two and a half thousand I think wow and 200 people turned up <laughs> uh. um because that was the night that um yeah they advised that theatres and stuff would be closed. Yeah. But it was that was one of the ma- the most amazing gigs I've ever done because us as the band were playing in this huge hall, yeah. um, and I think um, all those people that had come that night, regardless of the fear, yeah. um, were so so pumped to be there they just they didn't want to be anywhere else so no. there's a, a weird connection between us and the audience that night so yeah that was a great a great tour to go out to go out with living on mull and touring to canada japan manchester and all these different things what are the what 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 is the experience of living on mull and touring like that like what 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 do you have to take into consideration by living here um it's easier than i had anticipated for sure it's it's harder if you're going away for the odd gig yeah and i think the glasgow part living in glasgow was definitely a good base to moving to mull because you've already kind of we had kind of established ourselves in the work that we were going to be doing so that work is this still the same really we do lots of different things on you know as well but the main kind of things that we we do are still the same so um when it comes down to touring it's 
kind of easy because you have to leave home wherever you live. And you, I would say we're kind of Glasgow based in terms of music. Um, We work out of Glasgow and sometimes Edinburgh. But um, And then we have a studio in our house, which was where I'm sat now. Um, So we turned our spare room into the studio. So um, very lucky to live with a sound engineer, uh, a recording engineer. So we we do a lot of work here as well um, because obviously the kind of logistics of going for a, a day in the studio and back, although we do do that sometimes if it's, de- if it's kind of a desperate situation, logistics are not so easy for that. But we can um, record everything here. We don't have a piano. That's the only thing. Just use a born yeah. tempe, no one will notice. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so, um, I, yeah, I think a lot of my friends have, have actually started to kind of feel like, you know, they, they kind of want to get out of Glasgow, yeah. and we did it seven years ago, and they kind of I like get a lot of people asking us advice and asking us for um, kind of tips or, yeah. you know, just how, how we got on. And it, there are definite parts that are difficult. and Of course, yeah. I think when you're going away... Wintertime ferries, nightmare. Winter, oh, winter ferries. Yeah, I mean, there have been times where we've had to leave three days earlier than yeah. we were supposed to because we're worried that we're not going to get off for, what you know, certain gigs and stuff like that. But it doesn't have to happen often and Loch Allen Ferry yes. is a lifesaver. <laughs> it, it's fantastic, so, yeah. I would encourage if you know I would encourage anyone that is thinking about getting out the city, yeah. moving a bit more rurally. Just for your for your lifestyle. I mean, it suits my my lifestyle um, anyway. But um, I yeah, I don't think I would live in a city again. For sure, unless it was maybe, you know, for a short amount of time for a certain project or work or something like that, yeah. that would be different. But um, it's been a lot easier than I thought it would be. And I think half of that is probably due to um, working with Soren a lot of the time as well. So we're not actually going away separately yeah. all that often anymore. We have the odd tour where one of us goes away and stuff like that, but... Yeah, so it's it's been it's been great, and then what a great place to come back to as well, because you're mainly working in cities, aren't you? When you're on tour, the big kind of cities and the big venues and all that kind of stuff, and built-up areas and trains and buses and all that kind of stuff. So when you get back here, it's just a, a kind of breath ah. of fresh air, and I love that feeling when you get on the ferry because the ferry is just us. For me, it's like a the time doesn't exist, sort of weird zone it's an airlock where you can't yeah you can't do anything because you aren't anywhere yet or something I don't know what it is but yeah. I love the ferry yeah it's just 45 minutes of like just space yeah I love it I love having breakfast on the ferry that's one of my absolute favourite things is a sort of uh, <laughs> flat sausage and tatty scone roll 
just nice uh, and just the fact of catching up with friends or someone random you haven't seen in so long is yeah. so so good and that like the uh, MV Isla Mall is, is the best for that because you know you can go all over the place but the Karushk if you're not in the mood to see you know if it's one of those times you want to see you just <laughs> no wanna, hiding there's nowhere to hide you know, just I just put my headphones on and my sunglasses on and just close my eyes but yeah <laughs> yeah I know I like a I do like a Calmac breakfast actually Cold, cold toast. Oh, can it? But the porridge is good. The <laughs> porridge is very good. Now. The um, thing that gets me about the, I cho- the reason I chose to live here was that, like yourself, my work just wherever the wind blows. You know, from gig to gig, from project to project, just wherever the wind blows. And there's so much time where you're not working that you want to be somewhere where you really want to be. You don't want to be somewhere where you're kind of putting everything else on pause just to kind of go for the next job or whatever. You want to be somewhere where you want to make it your home and call it home. And so those kind of bleed days on either side of a project or even those in the winter, those three-day bleeds on either side of a project, they, it's worth it. It does add up because the rest of the time is so, so special here that there's just... I don't know. It's I think that's one of the things we try to look at through this project is why are why are the places that we call home special to us? Why do they, why do we connect to them? And why do you think... Why, what, why have you connected to Contra? What do you think it is about Contra that you've really connected with? I'm unsure. I think this has been, this, well, this has definitely been the first kind of home I felt like I've had of my own from moving out of our Glasgow flat yeah. because we, you know, that was a shared flat with, you know, our, our best pals. But then we moved into that little chalet and that felt like a kind of stepping stone to here. And then um, if you could see the cottage as well, it is just the, it is idyllic. It's that kind of classic fisherman's cottage, um, little yellow door, very cute kind of house, and it has a lot of character. And I, it was a holiday house before before us, and um, well, before the people that were in the before us, and um, it just didn't have that much love. It didn't feel like it was lived in really, and we have over the years just kind of made it our own and yeah I just really love it here and the people around Contra are I mean everyone in the Rossumall they're all lovely and everyone has that same kind of pace of life I think probably everyone on Mull has that but there's a definite kind of north-south divide of dare I say it you know that kind of, of it's, two, it's two different things when you get off the ferry and you turn right you're going to Tobermory and the north end is, you know, that kind of more kind of, it's like the big city, isn't it? Whereas the Rossumall is kind of, yeah, <laughs> it's, the Rossumall is very, um, like the kind of west of Mall. It feels like you're going back in time in a nice way mm. as a sort of escape, but it's got some really amazing people that are doing brilliant things as well keeping it in the kind of 21st century you know it's not just yeah it's not it's not like a it it has the kind of good things of the old yeah the old ways but also good for modern life too and and people lots of cool cool alternative kind of ideas and stuff like that that are welcome here 
Yeah, there's the, the amount of creative people in the Ross is incredible. People from all over the world as well living in the Ross. It's just brilliant. It's uh, yeah, it's a great artists, musicians, and yeah. people building Poets. little steampunk yeah, artists. Poets. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's amazing. It's I'm very, place. very happy here. Feel very at home here. Ah, totally. Well, yeah. I think that's a great place to to call it, call it a day. Thank you so much, Hannah. That's absolutely amazing. I'm so chuffed to get to spend this time with you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much, Hannah. It was great to get a chance to catch up and have a blather. If you'd like to see Hannah's great-grandfather's pictures, she's very kindly provided me with a few photos which you can see on the website. If you wanted to buy Hannah's EP, you can find a link to it on the website too, which will take you through to Bandcamp. It's brilliant. I recommend it most heartily. I've also put a link up to Hannah's partner Soren's Bandcamp page, which is full of goodies, and Hannah's sister Kirsty's album, Maps, which just came out recently. Hannah and I were speaking last week in preparation for the podcast going out, and she wanted me to say that the fiddle she plays was made by Joseph Ian Ross of Pitlochry. She got it when she was 16 years old, and it's incredibly dear to her. Back during the first lockdown, Hannah and Soren provided the music for Islands in Film, and it was a delight to get to spend time with their music, to get in amongst it like that. Very often, when you're editing a film together, you kind of get sick of the music you're working with. And I can say that that was never the case with their music. It was always a treat to revisit it and spend time with it. And hearing songs from the film still brings a smile to my face. Now, I've not been able to get an episode out for months and months because I've been flat out with work. Most of my days of the last months have been 12 to 14 hours at work, so I've had no brain space or energy to do anything outside of drive my desk at 120 miles an hour. I've been working on lots of lovely projects and I'm so lucky to be involved in them, but this has meant that my time for what we do in the winter has been somewhat limited. Listener, I've missed you. I've been feeling very guilty about this, as I'm sure you'd know. It's a project that I absolutely love and I put it at the centre of my creative life. Having this episode out with you makes me very happy indeed. There are two more episodes in the archive waiting to be edited and put out. I can't make a promise when those will be, but it should be in the not too distant future. They're very special conversations, which I feel very lucky to have had, so I can't wait to share them with you. Here's a wee thing that may be of interest. Georgia, my wife, has produced a collection of What We Do in the Winter tin mugs. I'll put a picture up on the website so you can see them. If you're interested in buying a mug, please follow the link. They cost £10 plus postage. But if you live in the north of Mull, I'm pretty sure we can deliver them for you. Also, I've got a survey running at the moment to allow me to gauge how you, the listener, engages with the podcast, which is really, really useful for me to build up a picture of of the listenership. If you've got two minutes to spare and are so inclined, I'd love to hear from you via our survey. You can find the link on our site. I'm going to put up a page on the website in the next couple of days linking to Argyllshire bookshops. There are some amazing bookshops in Argyllshire and the current crisis has hit them hard. So if you feel like supporting them at Christmas time, they can get you pretty much any book you want to get. And as far as I know, they all pay tax, unlike certain other retailers. If you wanted to support the podcast, please feel free to click the donate tab on whatwedointhewinter.com. But don't worry if you can or don't want to. I'd much rather you listened and went gallivanting with us than not. And on that note, thank you so much to our monthly supporters. As you know, I really appreciate it. I noticed that we've got a new supporter on Patreon, so thank you so much for, for helping out there. That's, that's really appreciated. 
I'm going to give the Patreon page a wee going over soon, so do keep your eyes on there to see if there's anything that appeals to you within it. If you could leave a star review on whichever platform you listen to, I'd be really grateful. It just helps to spread the word about the project and makes the stories available to more and more listeners. Thank you to all of you who reach out to say hello. It absolutely makes my day to hear from you. It's great to be back with you. I hope that you're well and that life isn't too stressful at the moment. I hope you can find some sense of peace and calm amongst everything. Anyway, well, I'm going to leave you now with a tune that Hannah's very kindly provided for the podcast, which is really appreciated. It's called Shy of the Daylight. Thanks for listening. I look forward to catching up with you again soon. More and thang. Shinakate. Sunday morning.